Thank you, David. Thank you, Sydney. You know, I really enjoy Christmas season, especially all the, the carols. Isn't it fun to sing Christmas carols? Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And just we were reading about the birth of Jesus and um, all that involved, all that was involved around his birth. We've been here at church working through past couple Sundays some of the names of Christ. We worked through what Emmanuel meant, God with us, and uh, which, how Jesus fulfilled that. And then uh, we've also talked about the Lord saves. We talked about this a little bit on the night of our lessons and carols, Yahweh saves, Jesus means the Lord saves. And then we talked this morning about the Word, God in the flesh, and this evening I'd like to ask you about um, uh, what often people think is part of Jesus' name. It's the word Christ. And when you think of the word Christ, what does it mean? Well, if you look at Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along with me. I have several passages we're going to look at tonight as we have our, small, our short time together. Luke chapter 2, in verse 11, as was read just a few moments ago, the declaration from the angels in verse 11. He says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, that's nearby, a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Jesus, the Savior born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But notice how it's described. He says, born to you this day a Savior who is, and it gives the description of who He is. He is Christ the Lord. If you go over just a few verses to verse 26, we see the story of Jesus as a young boy brought into the temple where He is dedicated there in verse 26. It says that there's a man there named Simeon, And he says, and it had been revealed to him, Simeon, that by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Again, the title for Jesus. Verse 27, so he came by the Spirit to the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, look at this song he sings in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The word Jesus means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And he holds Jesus saying, I seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. And both this time, in both these, these moments, and also we see throughout the Bible, Jesus is called the Christ. What does it mean? If you do a little investigative work, you'll find the word Christ means chosen one or anointed one. In the Old Testament, the word that they use, the Hebrew word, is Messiah or Mashiach. And we in English would say Messiah, the Messiah of the Lord. And so when you say Jesus Christ, what you're saying is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the chosen one. What were they expecting in this Messiah, this chosen one? What were they they looking for? In some ways, Jesus is coming perfectly fulfilled, what their expectations were. But in other ways, their expectations... And what the Scripture told us about Jesus, uh, they were not the same. They did not expect some things that Jesus did. In fact, some of the people who should have known better did, did not accept Jesus for who He said He was. In fact, if you go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, I want to look at a familiar passage. Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of your Bible, we see uh, this passage as we look at the Christ promised. When we see the Messiah, the Christ promised, what do we find? Well, in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, we see that, that uh, uh, Satan has deceived the woman. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
And as Satan deceived the woman, she, she, she fell into sin, and Adam also fell with her into sin. In, their, in this, they, they speak about this. The Lord comes to them and confronts them over their sin, and then they, they talk about who was to blame for this. And in all this, the Lord curses the serpent and gives a curse against this deceiver. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, you are cursed.'" more than any cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15 is the important verse for us to consider. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the promise and the curse against this deceptive serpent who led Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. He says, her seed the seed of the woman, uh, it's a very interesting and unusual way to describe a child. This seed would come and destroy and overcome the seed of the serpent. There would be a, uh, we're, we're not told the details yet, but there's this vague idea. There is to battle between two entities, and both would suffer some sort of casualty in battle. The difference would be both in degree and in scope. We see here that the serpent would bring a glancing blow to the seed of the woman, there would be a bruising of his heel, but notice the difference. The seed of the woman would bring a final blow, would crush or bruise the head of the serpent. And we see this picture drawn out because this, this promise of a future deliverer, a future champ, champion would take thousands of years to come about. So there's some questions for us to consider if we were reading this for the first time. We ask, who would be this mysterious seed of the woman? People for thousands of years ask themselves, who is this chosen one of God? Who is this, this champion? What would his identity be? This is a singular person, a chosen person, an anointed one, a, a Messiah. Who would he be? Who were the seed of the serpent? Was this multiple people? Was it one? Was it a physical seed, a spiritual seed? And in what way does the seed of the woman defeat the seed of the serpent? How would it come about? It seems in this that it's connected to this idea of, of sin and her deception uh, and, and bringing sin into the world. So would, would the defeat of the serpent mean the defeat of sin? Would it mean the defeat of, of suffering? Would it be dealt with by this removal uh, of, of the seed of the serpent by the woman's seed? Why would this champion need to be the seed of a woman and not the seed of a man? What, what is involved in that? Why? And, and what would that involve? And from the perspectives of Adam and Eve, who heard these words from the voice of God, they un understood just the broad outlines. They did not understand the specifics of what God was saying. And it's amazing to consider they just knew that sin was now here, that a conflict would ensue, and that a champion would one day come. That's all they could know. If you go forward in your Bible all the way to Second Samuel chapter 7, we move forward in time about 4,000 years. In Second Samuel chapter 7, We have King David here speaking, or the Lord speaking to King David through Nathan the prophet. We'll start in verse 8. The brief context is that David wants to build a house for God, and God says, I, I'm going to not let you do that. You're a man of war, a man who brings blood, and I'm not going to let you build a house for me, but, but I'm going to do something for you instead. I'm going to build you a house. Look at verse 8. Now, for, therefore, thus says, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, have cut off all your enemies from before you, have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, I will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own and move no more. 
nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you, here it is, He will make you a house. God says, I am going to do something for you. I will make you a household, a heritage. I will make you a long-lasting kingdom. Look at verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God says, once you die, the Lord will raise up a son after you. This is Solomon in the immediate. And this man will be from your line. He will be from your family. Again, the theme of seed and family continues. And he says, he, you know, the question would be, is this, is this one? Is this one perhaps the seed of the woman? Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. Verse 13 tells us that he shall build this house. In the short term, this was Solomon's work, but in the longer term, it meant something far, far greater. In verse 15, it tells us, but, his, but my mercy, my loving kindness, my, my covenant with him shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I re- removed from before you. In other words, God is saying, I will establish his kingdom and I will keep him on the throne. He will be, your line will be an everlasting kingdom. Your throne will endure. Saul was removed from being a king, and his line was removed, and the Davidic kingdom was established. And God said, I won't do that to your kingdom. So some questions to consider as we read passages like this. If you're a Jewish person reading this, you know about the story of the seed of a woman. You come to understand this a promise from God. How could David's throne, King David's throne, be established forever when a nation went into exile? When they lost their throne, when they experienced the judgment of God, could it be that the seed of the woman would one day fulfill or fully occupy David's throne in some way? How could that work? And will will David's throne be established as a forever succeeding term of human kings? Like, can we expect David's line to continue after one king dies, another takes his place? After another king dies, another takes his place into eternity? Is that what we're to expect for a non for a never-ending throne? Is that what we're to expect? Or will this throne be established by one king who never dies? Somehow this will be established. If we keep going, we find the book of Daniel. You turn there for a few minutes. Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9, we come across a very cryptic uh, uh, passage, a prophecy to the prophet Daniel. We've moved forward another 500 or so years, maybe longer. And we see Messiah as one who means anointed one, chosen one. And Messiah, what will he do when he comes? We're given this uh, description in Daniel 9, 24. Look at verse 24. He's uh, the angel speaking to Daniel, and he gives him this prophecy. He says, 70 weeks or 70 uh, uh, groups of seven years are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Several things are going on here. He lists them out of the things that will be accomplished at the end of these weeks of years. He says, number one, they will finish the transgression. That is, he will put an end to transgression. It will be no more. Secondly, he says he'll make an end to sin. Sin will be paid for. Sin's power will be removed. He will bruise the head of that sin-bringing serpent. 
He will make an atonement or a covering for iniquity. He will pay for the wages of sin wholly and completely. It will be finished forever, once and for all. He will bring in some sort of everlasting righteousness. The work of Messiah will be not only the negative to solve the problem of sin, it will be positive to bring in righteousness that will last forever, an everlasting kind of righteousness. Who can give this righteousness except God? There will be a sealing up of vision and prophecy, the idea there will be a final nature to Messiah's work. The work of prophets and those who pointed towards Messiah would be done, no longer needed, because Messiah's work would be the culmination of prophecy, the final end, the final purpose to all that God had given to him, and they would anoint the most holy place, the place of the temple called the holiest of holiest, would be sanctified. This was the place where the, the, the high priest could enter once a year with sacrifice. There, the offering for sin would be made, uh, made a blood offering there on the mercy seat of God. Messiah would fulfill that in some way. In the next few verses, we see Daniel, again, receiving this cryptic prophecy about what would happen. Look at verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after that sixty-two weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, the prince who shall come, or who are to come, or who is to come, sorry, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. To the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifices and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined. It poured out on the desolate. This is a very complicated and very difficult passage of Scripture that he deals with, but some things are incredibly clear. Amazingly, he gives a time frame. He says, when the prophecy is given, when, when a decree is made until a certain amount of weeks are filled, a certain amount of numbers of seven years are completed, then Messiah the Prince will come in. And, and many people have done the math, and depending on exactly when the decree goes out, you can figure this is around the time when Jesus probably would have entered the triumph, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And it says that after 62 weeks, something terrible would happen. If you'll notice back in verse, I guess, 25 or 26, 26, the Messiah shall be cut off. Something happens to Messiah. These are words of death and killing. Messiah would be cut off and he would have nothing. He would die. But notice it's not for himself. How could this be? How could Messiah be cut off? Will he die for others? How will this work? And Messiah the Prince, it says, will accomplish a lot of what's prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He'll put an end to iniquity. He will, he will face harm. He will be cut off, just like the seed of the woman who faces the bruised heel. There's, there's something going on here that, that we wonder, is this exactly what he's speaking of? But then we see in the book of Luke, Christ the Lord, Jesus the Christ who comes and I want you to notice how Jesus fulfills all these expectations and more so. You see, Jesus is that great champion of Genesis 3.15, for he destroys the serpent. He's the son of David who will rule and reign forever and ever. And he's the Messiah prophesied in Daniel 9 as well, because in his death on the cross, when Jesus came, he accomplished the work of paying for sin. He, he finished the work of sin, uh, uh, the work that he had. He, he said, it is accomplished, it is finished, and he paid for sin. He's the Christ who put an end to sin. He's the chosen one of God who, who paid the penalty that we all deserved, and he brought in everlasting righteousness. He rules and reigns for a thousand years, and more so, and forever and ever. How did he bruise the serpent's head? 
while his death meant he suffered, but how did the serpent suffer? Well, he, he, he will suffer forever. He will be destroyed by Jesus himself. The serpent will be. And it says that the, through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus conquered death and the power of death once and for all. The son of David came to be virgin born, the seed of the woman, to build a temple that would be forever. So when we celebrate Christmas Eve, we're here on Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, we celebrate the hope and we celebrate the victory given to us through Jesus, our Messiah. He's the one predicted, and He's the one who's fulfilled. When we say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus, the chosen one, the anointed, the Messiah one of God, who came and fulfilled everything that was necessary. Some thoughts for us here on this Christmas Eve as we gather together and as we close our service. I'd like for us to consider a few things. Number one, God keeps His promises to deliver and to save. Isn't it amazing that God always keeps His promises? We're not people who always keep our promises. We try. Sometimes we don't even try but we mess up. We, we don't do what we're supposed to do. God always keeps His promises. I, I brought your attention to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. For me, it's like one page turn into my Bible, and there is the beginning of the promise of a coming Messiah, and that promise is carried out throughout the rest of the Scripture. God keeps His promise. He always keeps His promise, even when a lot of time passes. I'm tempted to think sometimes when a lot of time passes that someone's forgotten about me, or someone's forgotten to do something for me. Uh, or, you know, that happens to me all the time. And I think, I think they've just, I think it slipped their mind. And sometimes I'm right. Sometimes if, if, some, if you've asked me to do something and I haven't done it for a long time, you might need to check in, right? Because it, it might be that I've forgotten. But when, when time passes with God, that does not mean he's forgotten. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God is saying, you know what, for God, a thousand years is nothing. It's like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. To God, time to God is not the same as it is to us. God is patient. He's not bound by time. We are bound and stuck in time. There's nothing we can do to go back in time. As much as we'd love to go back and change our mistakes, as much as we'd love to jump into the future and see what's waiting for us, we cannot go forward. We cannot go back. We are where we are. God is not like that. God sees into the past. God sees into the future. God is outside of time. God is the creator of time. And the God who created time is not bound by time. He is faithful. He always fulfills His Word. He always keeps His promises to deliver and to save. Second thing I wanted to point out tonight was is that God answers don't all, God's answers don't always come like we think they will. I think it's amazing as you read the story of Jesus, his people around Him are confused. They think, wait, He says He's the Christ, but He doesn't act like the Christ we expect. We expect Him to be doing this or that. We expect Him to be a political leader, yet He's a religious person doing miracles and speaking in parables. This is not like what we would expect and so they, they get confused. They get frustrated at Jesus. And, you know, sometimes we're like that. We think God is going to do a certain thing. But just because things are different than what you thought they would be does not mean, number one, that God is surprised, or number two, that God made a mistake. God works in His own ways. And as Isaiah tells us, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So the way God works, we need to learn to trust Him. God keeps His promises to deliver and to save. God's answers will always come out like they think they will. And thirdly, Christmas isn't the end, it's the beginning. As we celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Christ, we're not celebrating the end of something, but the beginning of something. God's 
unfolding revelation of himself to us, to the world, and the working out of his plan of salvation. The people, some people never get beyond Jesus, in the ba- Jesus as a baby in the manger. To them, it's baby Jesus. They never see Christ on the cross, or better, Christ risen from the tomb. We need to get beyond just the, the baby in the manger. That's the beginning of the story, not the end. And as we, as we think about what Jesus did in this world, the most important thing he did was what he did on the cross by paying our sins, paying for our sins, and, and, and giving us hope and freedom if we come to him in faith. In fact, the third verse of Silent Night, if you take your, your thing and look on the back of this, you'll notice it says, Silent Night, Holy Night, Son of God loves pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. God's dawn of redeeming grace has come with the birth of Jesus in the manger. It's the beginning of the story of God's grace. This is the dawn of it. So, what's our response to that dawn of redeeming grace? Our response is hallelujah or hallelujah or praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord to our King. So, let us praise our Lord this Christmas, our Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah. Father, we love you and we thank you that we can praise you, the Messiah. We can lift up your name because you have accomplished what you, were, what you set out to do in your first coming, Lord, as we look towards your second coming. We do so with faith and hope, and we are grateful that you have saved us from the penalty and the power of sin. And may today be a day of rejoicing as we sing to you, as we celebrate the coming of Christ as a baby, recognizing this is not the end of the story, it's the beginning, the dawn of of redeeming grace, your gift of grace and salvation to us. In Jesus' name, we thank you.